the biggest drug dealer in America is finally arrested. Then we continue Too Good to Be True week with an exploration of the story of the Phantom of the Opera. Is the story true? Did a crazed, deformed man actually steal a soprano? And, depending on how long I talk about Phantom of the Opera, because I love that story, depending on how long I talk about that, we may get to something else. We'll find out, or I may just talk about Phantom of the Opera for 20 minutes, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. We may or may not have a lot to cover. Again, it depends on how long I talk about Phantom of the Opera. So let's go ahead and get started with our non-opera related story. This just happened. Fascinating, fascinating story. It's May 13th, 2019. Members of the FBI begin to move into a mobile home park because they know in this park is America's biggest drug dealer. There's a rookie there, and they're like, hey, rookie, rookie, come here. The guy's like, me? It's like, yeah, you're the only rookie here. Get over here. Inside, see that mobile home? Yeah, yeah, I see it. You see how there's like that built-on giant shack attached to it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of odd. No, 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 it's normal. It's normal. Sometimes people build onto their mobile homes. But inside that shack is America's biggest cocaine dealer. Between the year 2013 and 2017, he distributed over a pound of cocaine. Rookie's like, what? That's nothing. Like, I mean, yeah, that's a lot of cocaine, but how does that make him the biggest cocaine dealer in America? And the FBI agent goes, you'll see. And then at that point, you hear a beep, 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 as a crane starts (laughs) driving through the mobile home park. So 48-year-old Kenneth T. Hicks was arrested for conspiracy to distribute cocaine. And he had a couple of co-defendants. They've actually all pled guilty. He's the only one who hasn't pled guilty yet. He hasn't gone to trial. Because he's 900 pounds. And he's just sitting in his house. He can't leave it. Now, I have a couple questions about the story. How does a 900-pound man who can't leave his house distribute anything? I mean, really, isn't point of distributing, like, moving it from one location to another? Was he literally just, like, passing it from one hand to the next, and that was crossing state lines? Yeah, it's one of those story guys. And you know what? And I can make fat jokes, because I, I'm i still overweight, but I got up to 350. Like, I was, I was one-third this guy's size, and I was barely ambulatory. Did I ever tell you my couch story? Where I bought, I, my mom bought me a couch when I first moved up here. And it was a secondhand couch. It was a really nice couch because it's Hood River. So everything secondhand is still really nice. And over the course of maybe like two or three years, the legs gave out. The, I broke a couch. I broke the legs of a couch. That's how big I was. I would tell people that you see that in Shrek. I still have the couch, by the way. I have wooden pallets now to live because originally it just didn't have any legs. Like all the legs broke off, so I just still used it. And people would come over and they'd be like, "How do you get off this couch?" Because you sit down on it and your knees are like to your chest. But anyway, so I put some um, like wood pallets underneath it, so now it's like a normal size couch. So I can make fat jokes. I'm allowed to. Anyways, let's get back to Mr. Hicks here. He can't leave his house, but obviously he has to go to trial. So his first hearing was via video. Now, I am i don't know why they just didn't say, we'll do all the hearings via video. 
If you plead guilty or you're found guilty, then we'll figure out what to do. But a judge says, no, you should be in the courthouse for this next part of this. And everyone's like, well, how do you move a 900-pound man? So the judge says, listen, here's what we'll do. We're going to have a You have a ramp at your house, right? It hasn't been used in ages because you haven't left. And he's like, yeah, I have a ramp. We'll get a gurney, and we'll just put you on the gurney, and we'll wheel you out the door, and there you're fine. And <laughs> at that point, everyone's like, eh. I don't think you've seen his house. So the judge goes, okay, okay. This is actually true. The judge says, if we can't get him out the front door, what we'll do is we'll cut a hole into his wall, and then we'll get, quote, a device capable of lifting the defendant's weight, i.e. a UFO tractor beam. 900 pounds is a lot. You would have to use some sort of crane to move a 900-pound person. To move a 900-pound anything, you would need some sort of crane. And, he, and people go, well, what if that doesn't work? Like, they had to work all this out in the court documents. And he goes, well, if you can't leave the door on a gurney, and we can't cut, you can't fit through the hole we're going to cut in his wall, what we're going to do is we're actually going to tear down the ramp, brace the floor, and cut down a bunch of trees so we can bring a big enough vehicle in to load them onto. And to make matters even worse and or funny, depending on which side you're on, he's naked. He's so big, he can't wear any clothing. So they have to <laughs> they have to hold his trial in the loading bay of the courthouse. So they're going to have to put him either in like a semi or the back of a flatbed. Like he's a tranked dinosaur from Jurassic Park being transported. And they're going to take him to the loading bay of the courthouse. This is in Richmond, Virginia. The trial is actually Tuesday. And it's open to the public. Tuesday, May 21st, 2019. It's open to the public. So if you want to see a 900-pound naked man most likely plead guilty for conspiracy to, to distribute cocaine. So they actually got him out of his house. I guess I should say that, too. The reason why this the court order was last week. They got him out of the house. And then he went to the hospital. They don't say why. They actually, uh, disappointingly enough, they, didn't, they don't say which plan they used to get him out. They don't say if they had to knock down trees like King Kong moving through the forest, or if he just went down the ramp going, wee! But they don't, we don't know. They didn't release that. But he did go to the hospital. Apparently, he's fine. They just diverted him there. And it looks like even if he pleads guilty, he'll be sent to the hospital. Because how, you know, prisoners all... <laughs> prisons already have a problem with overcrowding. A 900-pound man will not help that situation. And also, they do have to keep him under protective custody because Blade is looking for him to interrogate him on the origins of the Blood God. But, so Kenneth, we had a lot of fun at your expense. I actually, maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe you should lose some weight in incarceration. Conspiracy to distribute cocaine is actually a quite of a lengthy sentence. So I don't think it's going to be like total club med or more like club fed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, he'll be in there for a while, 900 pounds or not, but, you know. And maybe it's time to make some life changes. I did it. I lost 90 pounds. People can lose weight. If you're struggling with weight, you can find humor in it. I've been stuck at, like, 260 for a while now, but I was 350, and I got down here, so you guys can do it, too. So that is the moral of the story. Oh, well, the moral of the story is don't distribute cocaine, but second moral of the story is if you're struggling with weight, it's always... Better to pedal backwards than keep putting the pounds on. I had to put a little bit of a moral on that because otherwise it was just fat jokes. Now we're going to shift gears here really quick. We're going to turn the lights down low. 
I'm actually going to have to set a timer because I, I honestly could talk about this forever. April 15th, 1927. Gaston Leroux, French mystery writer, is on his deathbed. And as he's being attended to, a nurse walks by, a hot, sexy, 1927-era nurse walks by. He grabs her, grabs her wrist, pulls her close, says, It's true. It was all true. What, the, on his deathbed, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is alleged. But allegedly on his deathbed, Gaston Leroux was saying it was true. The whole story was true. I didn't make it up. And what he was referring to was the story of the Phantom of the Opera. Now let's talk a little bit about Gaston Leroux. He was a, he was attending law school and he had this super big like trust fund and he blew it all. He basically, I lost a lot of it gambling. So then he goes, oh, you know what? I need to make some money now instead of maybe being a lawyer later. He became a journalist. He did that for quite a while. Then he started writing mystery novels. And he was, he had one like the first big like murder in a trapped room novel. Like his was one of the, like the beginning of that wave. And it was quite successful. But he ended up writing a story called Phantom of the Opera. So, and I got to be fair here. I've never read, I've never read that book. I've seen the musical and they, they, they're pretty closely related. And to be fair, I haven't really even seen the musical. I saw the movie version. So there's a few differences, but the core is there. The core is there. So let me go over real briefly because I could literally talk about <laughs> Phantom of the Opera forever. The story of the Phantom of the Opera, it's absolutely fascinating to me. And again, we're going to focus mostly on the musical, but again, the story beats and the characters are all the same. Phantom of the Opera should basically be called Elliot Rogers, the musical, or Incel, the musical. It is the story of a man. It's... Okay. The fascinating thing about the Phantom of the Opera is this. It is one of the very, very few movies where the murderous villain is the protagonist in the sense that he had his plans perfectly set out, and he knew what he was going to do. The Phantom, Eric, is his real name, but Eric knew exactly what he was going to do. He had his whole life set in front of him, and out of nowhere, for no reason whatsoever, because of what anybody did, somebody else comes in and wrecks all the plans. Generally, I mean, you have, let's take Star Wars, for example. Luke Skywalker is just living his life. He's going about stuff. And then the Empire attacks... Princess Leia, and then she sends the message down, and then Aunt, whatever, the aunt and the uncle are killed and all that stuff. So then he goes and he wrecks Darth Vader's plans. That's normally how this stuff works. Normally, even if, like, the evil empire is already set up and everything's running relatively smoothly, and then somebody, like, Hunger Games, everything's running smoothly for the government, but then they start messing with Katniss's family, and she gets involved, and it becomes this whole retribution stuff. It's never like Skeletor has this totally fine, like, tax system set up, and everyone's okay with it, but maybe there's a few outliers, and then He-Man just wakes up one day and just starts wrecking Skeletor's plans. Skeletor, these bad guys do something to instigate the hero involving themselves in the fight. John Wick's dog type of thing. So, that's basically this. So, here's the story of the Phantom of the Opera, as briefly as I can put it. There is a young girl named Christine Daae. She is an orphan. And she goes to live at this opera house called Opera Populaire. At the opera house is already a old... He's probably like a teenager when she shows up. And he is a disfigured man who previously worked for a freak show who ends up living inside of the opera house underneath it where there's a giant lake. 
and, he, and he's a because he worked at a circus. He's a master of illusions. He actually has some architecture background. He's able to build whole. I don't know how he got the architecture background from the freak show, but whatever. We'll get into that in a second. He builds um, huge like walkways, tunnels all throughout the opera house, and he's down there. And he's constantly pulling tricks, and he's constantly, like, interrupting with stuff. People think the place is actually haunted. They think that there is a ghost there. And what he does is he basically begins blackmailing the people who run the opera house, saying, if you leave money for the ghost and you leave this box empty, box five, that overlooks the thing, I will stop pulling tricks on you. And they realize when they pay the ghost, nothing happens. And there's a lot of debate in the opera house whether or not the ghost is real, or if it's a person, or what's going on. But anyways... The story really starts off when the opera house is sold to two investors. And the two investors bring in basically a third investor who's the Vicomte. And he's a young man who knew Christine as a little girl. Because now at this point, Christine's like 18, 19 years old. And it's that same night when the Vicomte shows up that Christine Daae has her first performance at the opera house. Now, while she was asleep, the, the, the Phantom's all disfigured. But he sees Christine and falls in love with her. And he teaches her how to sing. Again, now there were a lot of in the musical version. He teaches her how to sing. And she thinks it's a ghost. She thinks a ghost is visiting her each night and teaching her the beauty of music and the passion of music and stuff like that. He's teaching her all of these lessons. Now, he's basically grooming her. So he's not a good person. He's definitely a villain. But his plan was basically to groom her and then to have her fall in love with him and then they'd live happily ever after and it'd be no big deal. And everything would have gone perfectly fine if at her first performance, the Vicomte did not show up and fall back in love with her or really fall in love with her for the first time because they were just little kids. So at that point, the Phantom really starts to lose his mind and he's like, he never would have fallen in love with you if I hadn't taught you how to sing. If I hadn't made you the woman you are, You'd be nothing. And because I made you this star, now he's in love with you. So he goes basically on a murder spree. It's fascinating because it's probably, if you watch the movie musical, it's one of the most beautiful horror movies ever made. Because that's what it is. There's a love component to it. It is a love story. But it's a horror. Because this guy has realized that his caged bird is about to fly. And he begins psychologically tormenting her and murdering people around her. Anyways, in the end, the Phantom, she has to choose between the Phantom and the Vicomte. Does she choose the man who infused her with passion, who gave her life meaning? She was just a young chorus girl who had no direction until this dark, tortured soul showed up and showed her the beauty of music. Or does she go with the comfortable, handsome guy who's very, very wealthy and can give her a life outside in the sunlight with kids and stuff like that. Because she can't have that with a phantom. Fascinating, fascinating story. And the thing is, as I remember watching... And I told this thing before when I was watching the movie Musical. I had never seen it before. had no idea what the plot was. I had no idea. It, I knew nothing about it. And I was super baked. I Back when I smoked a ton of weed, I got it from Netflix when they still shipped, shipped discs. I don't remember even why I got it. I put it in. Two and a half hours later, I'm bawling. Ball, I was just blown away by how amazing it is. And but and let me go into the true stories thing, but let me say this real quick too. Let me say this real quick too. Phantom of the Opera is probably, and I said originally it's like School Shooter the Musical or Elliot Rogers the Musical. It is. I remember watching that movie and I, it took me a while to digest it because it's just such a powerful story. 
And I remember afterwards thinking that is really the, and and this is super important for dudes because most women realize this, but a lot of guys don't. That movie really shows, showed me like I, I kind of understood it, but it really put it into words. I could understand women generally face a choice. Every woman has this choice. She can choose what she, she can choose the passion or she can choose the comfort. That, it really solidified that as a thing for me. Like, I go, whoa, this this is a very clear cut. She had a choice between the comfortable life or the passionate life. The passionate life would have been probably much more short-lived and wouldn't have been very comfortable, but it'd be the equivalent of hopping on the back of your boyfriend's motorcycle and driving off into the sunset and what adventures come next. Or the house, the picket fence, the family, the two kids. Growing old, sipping lemonade, watching your grandkids in the in the yard. That's the choice. And obviously, the goal is for women to have both. They want to have a guy who can provide a comfortable life for them, but they also want to have a guy who is super passionate about them, just just needs to almost like devour them as a person. You, they, the balance. And that's why books like, as a dude, I'm like, Fifty Shades of Grey, what is this? But then I'm always, Fifty, 50 Shades of Grey, he is that guy. He's the super comfortable guy because he's a billionaire. But then he's so passionate and, like, possessive of her. Same thing with Edward from Twilight. Same thing. That family was very, very rich. The vampires. And then he also just couldn't be without her. And Jacob the werewolf. I read all those books. Jacob the werewolf. They were poor. They lived on the reservation. It was a very, very low-class life. So that was the choice. Very, very fascinating stuff. Psychology of women and society and all that stuff. And my advice to you guys is try to figure out, one, where you're at in that spectrum and play to that strength. If you're like, listen, I'm not the super passionate guy, but I'm all about the comfort, the play to that strength. But I think that really you should try to be somewhere in the middle there. You can say, hey, let's hop in the back of my motorcycle and cruise off into the sunset. But in the end, we'll be sipping lemonade on grandma's porch. Like to try to find that middle ground, I think it tends to be the most successful. You don't want to be super passionate, but you don't want to be so comfortable. You're milk toast. Anyways, I could honestly spend another 30, 40 minutes talking about Phantom of the Opera and the psychological aspects of it and really go into the minutia of it. And normally when I talk about Phantom of the Opera, all the other people who like to talk about it are total nerds. And they're like, yes, when that fat guy hit like note C, it was, I'm like, I don't care about none of that stuff. I don't care about none of that stuff. I care about the narrative and I care about the interpretations of it all. And I could literally talk for another 40 minutes about it, but I'm not going to because that's another point of this podcast. The point of this podcast is, is that story true? I'll admit, when I even got a whiff that the story of the Phantom of the Opera was true, I got giddy. It would be the equivalent of if I found out that Cybertron was a real planet. That's how much I love that story of the Phantom of the Opera. That's how much that story touched me. So, let's look at it. There is, it was based on a real opera house. That's not it, there's more to that, but it is based on a real opera house. It's the Opera Garnier in France. The Opera Garnier does have a lake underneath it. It actually is more like it's flooded. It has a huge flooded area. They had to build a giant like brick wall to kind of keep the wall in. And now French firefighters use it to swim underwater. It's really bizarre, whatever. Seems like that's the last. It seems like Battle Beast. You have like the Fire Beast and the Water Beast and the Earth Beast. You don't have the Fire Beast swimming in the water and the Firefighter. Well, I guess firefighters are the Water Beast. Anyways, it doesn't matter. It is weird. So that exists. In Phantom of the Opera, a chandelier falls down and in the movie kills a ton of people. But um, and a, the chandelier at the Opera Garnier did fall at one point and killed one person 
So again, that's not enough for me to say that it's a true story. So let's look at some of the alleged rumors. And again, Gaston himself said that it was true. There are rumors, these are the rumors, that there really was a man named Eric who was deformed in France at that time. I'm sure there are a lot of deformed people in France, but this one was particularly hideous. Worked for a freak show. Ended up leaving, getting out of the freak show business. You know, there's no room for advancement. How do you become more deformed than you already are? He ends up going to the Middle East, ends up going to Persia and becoming an entertainer for a Shah there. And then from connections, you know, working it up, ends up getting a job. Because he was a smart guy, apparently, if he existed. This is all alleged. But he ended up getting a job as an architect's assistant. And then after kind of building a bit of a fortune over there and learning the skills of an architect, came back to France and got a job at the construction of the opera Granier. And the rumor is, is that there was a deformed guy who helped, whether or not he helped build the opera house or he simply worked on the crew, there was a deformed guy there, apparently. Now, all of this stuff, I should say, too, I should have said this earlier, a lot of these legends, they take place in the mid-1800s. So you figure there should be some records, but who's really keeping a record on the deformed employees of an opera house? It's not really something you're going to put in your books. But anyways, so Eric, this guy Eric working at this opera house, because he was an architect, he was able to make false floors and rooms that he could move in and out of that he would be undiscovered, which would make sense if you were disfigured. You wouldn't want everybody to see you like eating lunch. You'd want to build a little cubby hole. You go in there. You can eat lunch because I mean, you could be just kind of. You could have like a, a, like a like a lame disfigurement, like maybe like a one inch scar right above your eye, and you're like, oh my god, the horror. Or I mean, he could have had a huge hole in his mouth, and whenever he ate a sandwich, like food was falling out of the side of his face. So we don't know. We don't technically know if he existed, but the next person we do know existed. So there was an opera singer known as Christina Nilsson. And it is very, very widely accepted that Christina Nilsson is the inspiration for Christine Daae. Christina Nilsson was an opera singer. Before she broke out, she didn't end up becoming a big success, but before she broke out, she was sent to an opera house to train as a young woman from 1860 to 1864. That opera house was the Opera Granier. So this is what the legend has been in frames. And you'll kind of hear it a little bit on the internet, but a lot of them go, is the Phantom of the Opera true? They'll go, no, there's no ghost there, but that's not the question. Nobody's wondering if there's an actual ghost there. There was rumors at the time. It would actually make sense that there was no news story of this. That Christina Nilsson was kidnapped while working at the Opera Garnier. And after a three-week absence, she reappeared and stated that she was kidnapped by the deformed construction worker, Eric, and held underneath the opera house. They went to go find him. The authorities went to go find Eric. Couldn't find him at all. He was gone. And then, to make the legend even more tragic, I guess you'd say, it later on, I think it was like 50, 60 years later, something like that, they were doing some construction in the bottom of the opera house, and they found a walled-up room And when they knocked the bricks down, there was a skeleton of a man in there. And the idea is is that that skeleton was Eric. That he, he did kidnap her and in his heartbreak, walled himself up 
and cut himself off from society forever. If he couldn't have her, he didn't want anybody, and he basically killed himself by entombment. Now, what's interesting, other than my complete 100% acceptance of that story, because I want the Phantom of the Opera to be based on something true, is that there's really not a lot to back that up, except for the author's own words. Now, like I said, in that time period, if a woman was kidnapped by a deformed person, or willingly went with him, and then decided, no, I don't want this, this is too creepy, and left, and she's an up-and-coming opera star, you're going to do your best as her and her management team to squash that story, because you don't want that story getting out. It's too gross. It's Really, you're just kidnapped by some hermit, some gross-looking hermit, and dragged into his underground dungeon. It would be better if just nobody knew about it. Is the story Phantom of the Opera based on a true story? I want to think so. I want to think so. And you're like, Jason, you are so skeptical about everything. You're skeptical about, like, there's photographs of UFOs descending through portals. And you're like, ah, it's fake. You're so skeptical. Why do you want this to be true? Well, two reasons. One, I love the story. I love the story. And hey, man, you, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta call a spade a spade. Like, I mean, I get it. I am super skeptical. But, you know, I, there's certain things I want to hug. There's certain things I want to cuddle with. And two... Because this story has a dark twist at the end. You know, the whole story of the Phantom of the Opera, he was this illusionist. He was this this maniacal man who would do anything he wanted to get what he wanted. And just when you thought he was dead or gone, he would pop back up. A long time after this supposed abduction. So 1864 is when she left Opera Grenier. She ends up going to an opera house. I believe it was in... New York, but I'm not for sure. But she's on tour now as a big act. She's left Eric behind in his little dungeon. No one could ever find him, a presumed dead. And she becomes a giant star. There is, she's putting on a concert that's full of 50,000 people. And a rumor starts to move through the crowd. A whisper first. And then a yell. That the building next to the opera house is about to collapse. The scaffolding is going to give out. And the people begin to stampede out of the opera house. Nineteen people are crushed to death in the chaos. Many, many more wounded. And they have to turn the lobby of the opera house into a triage center. This is totally true. And Christina walks into the lobby. After all of this is done, she walks in the lobby and she sees all of these mangled people, these dead bodies of people who came to see her sing, to hear her lift their spirits up. She walks into a room full of bloody, broken, and dead people. And she said that experience never left her. She always remembered that. And I read that and I thought, the Phantom did that. A man twisted by rejection and revenge, hiding behind a mask, sneaking through the darkness of an opera house, and hearing the beautiful voice of the woman who spurned him, still singing and seeing 50,000 people enraptured by her. He doesn't have to drop a chandelier. He doesn't have to strangle anyone or do any sort of crazy illusions. He just has to spread a rumor and disappear back into the night. 
the building wasn't going to fall down. There was nothing wrong with the scaffolding at the other building. And nobody knows how that rumor started because there was no problems over there. But the rumor started, 19 people died, and Christina was haunted for the rest of her life by what happened. Was she haunted because it was a tragic accident? Or was she haunted because she knew who was responsible? But she couldn't tell anyone. Because she had sworn not to tell the story. It would ruin her reputation if they knew her past. If they knew the truth of her abduction. If they knew the truth of the Phantom of the Opera. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. But I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>